good morning, everyone. I'm really glad you're here. Here we are taking in a little two-week series on very challenging topics because we're going to talk about some of the very exclusive things that Jesus talked about. To introduce marriage today, I want to uh, take you to a study done by Rebecca Lawson at the University of Liverpool. And uh, she asked a very simple question. She asked uh, men and women from uh, very different backgrounds and different ages to draw from memory a bicycle. Simple, right? I mean, that just seems like a real easy thing. Well, not exactly. See, it was a psych test, and it was designed to basically um, show how little we know about things that we think that we know. And what she found was that a majority, that is a vast majority of the test subjects, ages 8 through 88, could not draw a functional bicycle from memory. This blew me away that the number could be so high, so I went and did my own little test. And uh, so your executive pastor, your programming director, and your youth director at your church also cannot draw a functional bicycle. And I'll show you some of these bicycle drawings, but just to underline how hilariously impractical they were, that an artist took these uh, bicycle drawings and made realistic 3D renderings of them, which I'll also show, just to show what these things would have looked like in real life. Okay, so here's the first drawing. This is by Anna. She's a 24-year-old student. Now, does that seem like a functional bike to you? It has most of the parts, but if you made it for real, uh, you probably couldn't reach the handlebars unless you're seven foot three. Okay, here's the uh, here's a bike drawing by Leonardo. He's a 19-year-old student. You see any problems with this bike? Yeah, it looks kind of cool, but I'm not sure how it's getting anywhere without any pedals or a sprocket or um, a chain, anything like that. Okay, here's Alexander. He's 30 years old from Mexico. He drew this one, this beefy bike. And that looks kind of cool. But if you made it for real, it would be this monstrosity, complete with a totally unworkable two-wheel drive system. And the frame of the bike is all mounted to one side, and so it would fall over. So, so uh, here's another one. This is Lee. He's a grandpa. He imagines a bike like this racer model, which looks kind of cool. But if you made it in real life, one small problem, it has three sets of fixed forks to the front tire, so it couldn't steer. So it looks like it'd go really, really fast in a straight line. And then here's a finally uh, a bike drawn by Rosella57. She drew this old school looking thing. You notice anything weird about this bike, AC3? Yeah, it's front wheel drive, yeah. And if you steer it, the chain would snap. So what they found out is that most bicycles people make up out of their heads are missing fundamental parts, like sprockets or a steering column. Many couldn't even remember where the chain or pedals went. So I, I challenge you, go to work this week, have a ton of fun, and uh, see what people draw out of their own heads when they have to draw a bicycle. Now, this study was not to show how dumb we are, though these bikes are pretty dumb. But it shows that when we go from our own whims, when we go from our own imagination, we can leave out essential parts of a really common design, and the result is something that's not functional any longer. Functional bikes can look very different, but to get one that works, there's a certain, catch this, irreducible number of key parts that must be present that you must include to make it work two wheels chain pedals seat steering etc now this is a perfect illustration of our topic today ask people uh, to draw a marriage just ask them to draw a marriage out of their own head and you're gonna get probably as many different pictures as you ask people but I submit to you this morning that these are non-functional designs in most cases because they don't conform to a pre-existing design, a design which has an irreducible number of key parts. 
Now, who would be so arrogant as to think that they knew that design, that, that overarching design that was critical, that had the key irreducible number of parts? Well, Jesus, that's who. And he gives us this design in Matthew chapter 19. So let's go to that conversation, shall we? Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. We turn to the scripture, and here we read some Pharisees who approach Jesus to test him. They want him to, they're trying to bait him to enter into a divorce remarriage controversy they have going on. So they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. He keeps going. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? It's an interesting way to put what Moses, the permission of Moses. He talked about it like a command, and he told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. Now let's pull this apart, shall we? Jesus answers the divorce controversy that's going on back then in the first century by going back to the design specifications. And where does he find those? He finds those in the creation account, in the origination of the human species from the mind of God. He reminds them that God's design in sexuality and in marriage has always been to include at least six key components, irreducible components. So first, he notes that God's design for marriage is that it's covenantal. When he says God has joined, what he means is that two people have come together in a vow. It's public. It's not just uh, private expressions of affection, but these are publicly made before God. Then it's heterosexual because he goes to the original creation of male and female and the natural design of human sexuality. It is also monogamous because he talks about the two. He doesn't say the three or the four. He says the two. And then he mentions that it's faithful. It's sexually exclusive. They become one flesh. Then it's also loving. That is to say they must not be hard-hearted. Divorce is directly tied to hard-heartedness, he says. And then it's permanent, lastly. And so that is obviously implied in what he says, that God, what God joins, man must not separate. So there you go. Six irreducible parts to God's design for marriage. So as with any working bicycle, Jesus thinks that there's an irreducible number of parts to the design for marriage. And it's a seamless design. You can't reduce the number of parts without making it non-functional and hence immoral. By the way, there's a tie in, in the Bible about that. There's a tie between things that are practical and functional and things that are moral and lawful. But you must define practical and functional according to the long term. Because we can have a great degree of disagreement about what's practical and functional in the short term. You could jump off a building, and halfway down, you could say, this is working, right? But you need to define practical and functional with the long view. And then there's a connection between what is practical and functional with what is moral and lawful. But today, people have reduced the number of irreducible parts. They want to take Jesus' marriage design in any one of those six parts. They could just you know, pull one out. And so, one of the first ones, uh, when we invented no-fault divorce in the 50s or so, we removed the permanent part. And what happened was immediately, we went from a 5 to 10% divorce rate to a 50% one, just like jumped up instantly. And it basically has hovered around 50% ever since. Then we also started to do it without public covenant. 
And that explains a sevenfold, that is to say 700% increase in the number of cohabitating couples today. And what a cohabitating situation is, is basically a trial marriage without a promise. It's without a covenant. By the way, that leads to cohabitating breakups, which because there's no marriage, is not really a legal divorce. But there's probably people in this room who could tell you that it's every bit as painful as a real one. Very recently, we've removed the heterosexual part within the last 12 months, uh, universally in our culture. Uh, we're also moving on to remove the monogamous part, as we're going to see uh, explicitly in just a minute. But you now see the rise of throuples, which are polygamous, or sorry, polyamorous groups of three or more of any gender. That's polyamory. And then, of course, polygamous uh, marriage model it, it deletes monogamy from the marriage uh, ideal. And so that's where you have one man and, and several wives. Or polyandrous marriages, which are also a thing, where you have one woman and several husbands. So friends, there's a lot of different marriage models out there. Unless we think this is just theoretical, there are real people right now really living in every single one of these marriage models. They are wildly different, but they're like in one way, and that is that one or more parts of Jesus' exclusive marriage design have been left out. And that we're going to contend this morning makes them non-functional. Now, some of you perhaps think I've been unfair because I've lumped together legal iterations of marriage, including same-sex marriage, uh, alongside illegal iterations of marriage, which would be polyamorous uh, marriages and polygamous marriages as well. But let's understand something when we talk about legal versus illegal, okay? Jesus didn't care about the legal versus the illegal. He cared about design. We know this because they wanted him to chime in on a legal controversy. Pharisees and scribes were essentially lawyers in the first century. They wanted him to chime in on a legal controversy, which is, what, what constitutes legitimate grounds for divorce, Jesus? They want him to jump in on that one. And he will answer them, but the first thing he does is bypass the legalities of Mosaic law and jumps to the creation model. He jumps to design. That's what Jesus fundamentally concerned with. What's the marriage design? What's the marriage for? What's God's intent in marriage? We can talk about the intricacies of divorce and remarriage, uh, and he will. But fundamentally, what Jesus is interested in is not the whims or the wishes of individuals or even the laws and the changing uh, uh, legalities of divorce and remarriage. He cares about design. What's it for? Well, he wants to know, how is it in the beginning? What was, God's, what was on God's mind when he invented marriage? Well, friends, then that should be the way we approach it, too. Less concerned about the legalities and more concerned about the design. Why? Because man-made marriage laws are a work in progress. They are a shifting target, constantly shifting, as we know only too well. Some marriage models have the blessing of the state. Some marriage models used to have uh, the, the uh, disapproval of the state, but now they have the approval of the state. Some marriage models continue to have the disapproval of the state. It's a shifting kind of thing, right? So uh, the question really is, for how long will certain marriage models continue to be illegal? For example, these three women uh, on the screen, they got married in Massachusetts recently. Uh, before 2004, this would have been doubly illegal, right? One, because it's a same-sex situation. Two, because there's three of them. Well, now, in uh, 2016, it's still an illegal marriage, but only because there's three of them. Now, here's another situation. This is Cody Brown, and these are his four wives. 
and uh, he has 17 children by these four wives, and he sued the state of Utah for religious discrimination, and he got a judge to strike down Utah's century-old ban on polygamy. And that, by the way, is a case that's now currently in, in process. So let's just admit something and be honest. We are a very short step away from every version of marriage that a person could consent to being legalized. Like, I just think that that's a fact. And by the way, that's just a, a shrill, uh, you know, kind of hair on fire opinion. That is also the opinion of same-sex marriage advocates, including one I'll, I'll quote extensively this morning. He's a professor, Dr. Kent Greenfield from Boston College, and he says, Maybe it's time for us to own up to something. You know those opponents of marriage equality who said government approval of same-sex marriage might erode bans on polygamous and incestuous marriages? They're right. Just let that sink in for a second. They're right. He goes on. As a matter of constitutional rationale, there is indeed a slippery slope between recognizing same-sex marriages and allowing marriages among more than two people and between consenting adults who are related. If we don't want to go there, we need to come up with distinctions that we have not yet articulated well. So then he challenges his marriage equality audience to ask themselves the question, what is the rationale? What is the rationale that would open the marriage institution to gay monogamists, but not to polygamists or to polyamorists or the incestuous? Why draw the line there and not here or here or here? What's, what's the grounds? What's the rationale? To make this not arbitrary, you've got to have some kind of ground. So he gives potential reasons why. Number one, he says, it's icky. And immediately he strikes this down as a valid rationale, right? Because that's the very argument that other people marshaled against same-sex marriage. He says he can't very well import that same argument, which he refuted for same-sex marriage, and say that's the reason why polyamorous relationships should not be allowed. They're icky. No, he says that, that's an invalid argument. So he goes on. It's bad for the children. Same thing, right? That was another argument that was marshaled against same-sex marriage. You can't rightly then import that and say, well, it's bad for the children to be raised in a polyamorous situation. So then he goes to a more substantive argument. He says it's about the science. Maybe we should draw the line at gay monogamy because it's about the science. In other words, because you can't choose your sexual orientation, but you can choose to marry two or more wives, there should be a line of distinction. But then he gets very honest about the state of the science. And he says, what if the science someday shows sexual orientation is more fluid and changing? And by the way, there are studies that are showing that very thing. Would that repeal gay marriage? If we find that sexual orientation is a very complex thing and it's not solid and static, uh, remaining unchanging over a person's lifetime? Well, no, he says. The true basis for gay marriage was never the science of hardwired and hard-baked sexual orientation. It was really freedom of sexual expression. Plus, he says, can we not imagine there might be a day when science will show that polyamory or polygamy is also hardwired? In other words, it's also an orientation. And then what reason do we have to resist polyamory or polygamy? So finally, a last argument, it's getting desperate. He says, well, what about maybe it's about minority status? In other words, gays should have advocacy because there's so few of them. Uh, but not the incestuous or the polyamorous. But he says this is, of course, flat wrong because people wanting to marry a family member or multiple spouses are far fewer in number. They're a sm far smaller minority than same-sex couples. So what's his conclusion, this professor from Boston College? He says, if these distinctions do not hold water, and he's agreeing that they don't, we have two options. 
We can continue to search for differences that make sense as a matter of constitutional principle, or we can fess up. What does he mean by that? We can admit our arguments in favor of marriage equality inexorably. That means um, uh, must lead us to a broader battle in favor of allowing people to define their marriages and their families by their own lights. In other words, however they want. Translation. There is no logical or legal basis to hold the line at monogamy, be it homosexual monogamy or heterosexual monogamy. So his feeling is that every consensual iteration of marriage should be and one day will be legal. And that's not the prediction of a sky is falling Christian. That's the prediction of this non-Christian same-sex marriage advocate. So friends, let's just admit that is the cultural situation we're living in. And that is the trajectory. There it is. Love it, hate it. But that's it, right? We can, I think, all say that that is the trajectory. It boils down to this, friends. The culture around you looks at marriage through wide lenses. And Jesus looks at marriage through very narrow, exclusive lenses. So if you're a Christian here this morning, if you follow Jesus, I want to ask you this difficult question. Who's forming your view of sexuality, marriage, and divorce, and remarriage, and gender. Who's forming your view of that? So you have to ask yourself the question whether it's the culture or whether it's Jesus. And then ask yourself that, that sort of question. Who, who trumps who here? Now, if you're not a Christian, you might object. I mean, you might have serious pushback on Jesus' narrow model. Beginning with, and I've got four objections right at the top of my head. They, in part, I, I, can, I get the difficulty. So number one, an objection. The Bible has no marriage design because it has polygamous marriage inside of it. I mean, how can you say, Rick, that, that Christianity has a marriage design that's uh, universal when the Bible has polygamy, slave-wife situations, prostitution, uh, you know, all sorts of different marriage uh, models? Well, friends, um, this argument is based on really abysmal Bible study. It is. And I'm so glad, you know, you're an extended the last few weeks. James walked us through good Bible study where we kind of got to understand the Bible and let it speak for itself in context in its global message. And so, yes, great saints of old, the Old Testament did practice polygamy. They multiplied wives, sometimes in direct contradiction to Mosaic principle. So where Moses says that a king should not multiply wives, David goes and has 12 of them. And Solomon goes and has, anyone want to know the number? 1,000, that's right, 1,000. 700 wives, 300 concubines. That was one busy cat, let me tell you. And, and so, interestingly, friends, every case of plural marriage in the Old Testament is descriptive, which is to say, this was done, rather than prescriptive, which is to say, do this. When we get to the do this parts, we get a universal and very simple uh, model for marriage. One man, one woman for life. In fact, the Jews were picking up what the Scripture was laying down. By the time Jesus shows up, uh, mostly the Jews had abandoned polygamy by Jesus' time. And Jesus' followers, and then you go to the church, the church never accepted anything but heterosexual monogamy as a pattern for the Christian life. Never. So um, that's one objection. I don't think it holds water, but here's another, and maybe you'd, you'd have this issue. Jesus' exclusive marriage design is really too hard. And if that's your, your objection, well, you got great company. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 19. Look at this. The disciples basically have the same objection. Matthew 19, verse 10. Jesus just said, here's my marriage model, six indispensable parts. And their response is, 
if this is the case, Jesus, it's better not to marry. I mean, they get it. They, they are picking up what he's putting down. This is hard, Jesus says. Not everyone can accept this statement. Only those whom God helps. So you sense a little three-year-old whining going on there? This is hard. Jesus, if this is the case, I mean, it's better not even to get married. Why get married? And that's when Jesus promises what? Special grace. I get it, he says. This is very difficult. But it is God's design. And God will bless you with power and special help if you embrace it. That's a promise. Yes, it's a higher design. It is a higher model. Absolutely. Not everyone can accept what I'm saying, Jesus says. But if God helps you, then you can. If God helps you, then you can. So guess what, Christian? You should not be surprised that your outsider neighbor thinks that the Christian marriage model is hard. Because the disciples thought it was hard. You should not be judgmental of them if they think the Christian marriage model is ridiculously narrow because the disciples thought that it was ridiculously narrow. Friends, we've got to kind of have some understanding here. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, Rick, if, if they accepted it, if we all accepted it as a cultural norm, wouldn't society benefit? Yes, absolutely. But it shouldn't surprise us that people think we're nuts for having the narrow view of marriage that we do. That shouldn't surprise us when the disciples themselves were flabbergasted. But I guess I will also say this. Uh, there is this idea out there that Christians hold to this narrow view, not because of devotion to Jesus, but because we're morons. <laughs> uh, because we deny the science. Because we're know-nothing morons who are denying fundamental things about reality. So, for example, in the case of homosexuality, they say, Christians are blind to how people are inbuilt with natural same-sex attraction. Christians pretend that orientation isn't a real thing. That's why they hold to this ridiculous marriage model. Or with monogamy, they'll say, Christians don't get it. They're blind to how people are just evolved animals. They can't be expected to stay with one person for a lifetime. Are you kidding me? So, friends, no one here is denying that there are natural difficulties inside of Jesus' exclusive design. Of course, no one denies that. Not well-instructed Christians, certainly not Jesus, and certainly not his disciples who were shocked when Jesus laid it down. No one's denying that. It is difficult. We don't submit to it, friends, because it's so natural. In other words, because it fits us so well. We submit to it because it's revelation. If you've come to see Jesus as the one who he is, who he said he was on other grounds, then when he starts to speak on an issue like marriage, you don't say, well, I want to make sure that that fits, you know, how I'm wired or how I feel or my whims or the law of the land. That's not the question. The question you ask is simply, is Jesus who he said he was? Then I accept his marriage model. I accept it, whether it's difficult or not. But I remember this, that though some parts of it I grade against, naturally they just don't fit, I trust him who said, God will give me help. God will provide special grace to live according to his higher marriage design. So here's a third objection. Jesus' marriage design uh, leaves singles and gays out in the cold. And by the way, this also is addressed in the passage itself. Let's keep reading. Uh, Jesus will continue. Verse uh, 12 of chapter 19. Some, he says, are born eunuchs. Some have been made eunuchs by others. And some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. Now, what's he saying here? <laughs> this is a little uncomfortable. Well, what's a eunuch? Well, let's define that. 
A eunuch is usually a man who's been castrated so that he can be uh, trusted to watch over a king's harem. In fact, the word eunuch is, is pulled out of two words, bed watcher, basically, or bed guide or something like that. And so it's essentially a person who could be trusted to watch over a harem, someone who's been physically mutilated so they can be trusted. But in this context, Jesus is clearly using eunuch as a euphemism for someone who simply has no interest in sex or marriage. And guess what, friends? He lists three kinds of eunuchs. So number one, there are some who have been born with no interest in marriage. Some have been born this way. Now, this might mean born with a physical defect, so incapable of sex, or born with an asexuality, they just have no interest. Now, interestingly, there are some here that think Jesus might also be referring to homosexuals who have no interest in normal marriage. And I think that it's possible. It's certainly whatever he's saying about people who are born as eunuchs could apply to anyone, anyone who has never been drawn to the opposite sex. That would absolutely apply to anybody who's in that situation. Now, why would someone be in that situation? It's very complicated. Cy Rogers is the name that you probably need to get familiar with. He's a formerly gay man turned Christian preacher. And he was homosexually oriented for many, many years. He's now a grandfather and a traveling preacher. But when he's asked about his orientation as a child, he says, yeah, I was, I was gay since as long as I can remember. And what was that like? He says... I was no fool. I knew women were objects of desire, but I didn't think I was a man worthy of that beauty. I hungered with a desire for a masculine touch on my soul to complete something in me so I could never look at a woman with longing. There are people who are born this way, who feel this way from very young, and the reasons why are extremely complex and not simple. There's the asexual. Uh, and they fit the description of a metaphorical eunuch. They have no interest in God's design for marriage, as Jesus spells it out. But then he says there's a second category of eunuchs. They have been forced into it by others. And here I wonder again if this applies not just to a classic eunuch, but also to other people whose desire for marriage has been ruined by the violence of somebody else. Because a classic eunuch has sure, certainly had that happen to them, right? Their desire for sex or marriage has been ruined by somebody else. But not, in the, some cases, physical mutilation, but emotional. There are people who have no desire for, for marriage, as Jesus lays it out, because they have been wrecked for marriage by the violence of others. They have been wrecked for marriage by those who have shown it so poorly and have emotionally wounded them so deeply, they just are wrecked for it. And then here's a third category of eunuch. Those who forego marriage or sex to be single-minded about kingdom business, a spiritual eunuch. This is a self-chosen professional single they might be heterosexually oriented they might be homosexually oriented it doesn't matter they've just chosen that as a calling so that they can expand work for the kingdom some are eunuchs for the kingdom of god jesus says so what's he getting at with all this uncomfortable talk about eunuchs well what's the context what's he getting at he says he's responding to the disciples who are flabbergasted their jaws on the floor because of how difficult Jesus has just made marriage. So he's saying to them, look, you know what, disciples? A lot of people, marriage isn't for them. If you find it unbelievably difficult, maybe you're among those who it's not for you. You don't have to get married. And Christianity has a long tradition of honoring singles. And I would say uniquely in our religious tradition. You don't have to get married just because the culture tells you that you have to get married or else you're an incomplete person. Some shouldn't get married because from birth, they don't desire it. 
Others are forced away from it by somebody else. Others choose to never marry for the sake of my own kingdom. You might fall into that court category, if any one of those categories, if you find this too difficult. But if you can accept my exclusive marriage model with my help, Jesus says, go for it. Go for it. Now, do you think that with these words, Jesus is denigrating non-marrieds? No way. I mean, how can he be? Jesus affirms a single person. He was a single person. Jesus is affirming Paul, who will write one-third of your New Testament, who was a spiritual eunuch, a lifelong devoted single for the kingdom of God. People who forgo marriage because it doesn't fit God's will for them are blessed. Paul blesses them, and Jesus here also blesses them. So if you're struggling with Jesus' marriage model because your sexual desires don't line up with it, Jesus says, hey, you're not alone. Lots of people, this won't work for them. Either not now, temporarily, or permanently. The widower, the widow, the hormonal teenager, the divorcee, the transsexual, the person who since birth has been oriented uh, towards sex with children, the people who because of disease cannot or should not marry, the single who chooses singleness to expand the service of Jesus. All such persons have desires. They did not choose, they did not ask for, and they're going to conflict with Jesus' narrow marriage model. And still he calls you to follow. There are times when the path of the disciple was going to expand the bounds of what we thought was possible. When Jesus talks about anti-materialism, the disciples go, are you kidding me? And Jesus says, with, God, this is, or with, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Think about the discipleship difficulty away from the issues of sexuality for a second. For other people, like for example, imagine the difficulty of Christian discipleship for someone who has been born with the psychological proclivity to the sin of stealing. We have a name for that disorder, by the way. What do we call that? Kleptomania. And it's a real thing. Imagine the difficulty of discipleship for that person, or about the anorexic, or the bulimic. There, there are people who have, been, uh, uh, ha who have desires that do not line up with gospel living or with Jesus-specific and narrow sexual marriage design. And the path of a disciple is enormously difficult for them. But God has promised explicitly grace to help. So the situation for the homosexual is not unique. And the condition of having desires that don't line up with Jesus' narrow marriage model is faultless. Let me say that again, because maybe you didn't hear me. The condition of having desires that don't line up with Jesus' narrow marriage model is faultless until acted on. And so we should distinguish between orientation and acts in the same way that we distinguish between temptation and actual sin. We should distinguish between these things. The Bible really has nothing to say about the homosexual orientation. But with such a condition, we also find that it's not unchanging. Not only uh, new scientific studies that are finding a sense of sexual fluidity in sexual orientation, especially with women, and that's science on this, but also in personal anecdotal experiences. It just takes one person who migrates away from a, what was a hard-baked, hard-wired sexual orientation into something else to disprove the idea that sexual orientation is static and unchanging over lifetime. It just isn't, friends. And by the grace of God, we're seeing it, and I can, we can name the names, and I have personal friends that show us that sexual orientation is more fluid than we've been led to believe. But understand something. When you come to Jesus, you do not come to be a heterosexual. You come to be his. 
When you come to Jesus, you do not come to, and he'll say, stop feeling that way. He will say, friend, stop resisting me. When you come to Jesus, you don't come to be married to children. You come to be part of his family. When you come to Jesus, you don't come to fake something that you're not. You come to get real and to get healed. And there's no other way to experience the life-changing grace of Jesus than to confessionally and openly and authentically. But can we agree, can we agree that humble followers of Jesus do not get to tell him what parts of his marriage model are lasting and which ones have an expiration date on them? So a final objection. Jesus' marriage design can accommodate gay marriage. And this, there's a growing gay Christian movement, and the argument goes like this. Because Jesus didn't specifically say in Matthew 19 that two men should not get married, therefore, if he were here today, he would surely line up and affirm same-sex marriage. And this is where, it really, friends, it ceases to be about homosexuality. Now it becomes an intramural debate between Christians about the place of the Bible in our lives. Where, where does it fall? How much does it form our discipleship? How should we read it? How should we apply it? How should we interpret it and understand it? And so when we come to interpreting the uh, prohibition passages when it comes to homosexuality, first of all, when it comes to Jesus, it's an argument from silence that he never talked about it. Well, Jesus also said nothing about lots of other things. He said nothing about child abuse. He said nothing about slave trading. And I don't think we want to draw moral principle out of that gap in his teaching. Second, I think if we consider his positive reference to Adam and Eve, male and female, as a silence on homosexuality, we're just misunderstanding the text. Here he is specifically affirming the duality of human gender as a core marriage component. He doesn't have to say that homosexuality doesn't fit this model. It's excluded by definition. And now again, let's go back to the whole bicycle analogy. If he was telling us how to build a bike and he lists the parts, he says... Well, you need the seat, you got to have the pedals and the chain and two wheels because it's a bicycle. Do you think it's fair then to say, well, I didn't hear him specifically prohibit three wheels. I didn't hear him say that we couldn't put a rocket booster on the thing. Well, no, he didn't. But the things he did say rule that out. A bicycle, by definition, doesn't allow for a tricycle. And male and female doesn't allow for a homosexual version of God's marriage model. So why does gender matter to Jesus? Well, we'll get into that and extend it. And I hope you stay. Because there's something deeply theological about being made male and female that is beyond the biological. We'll talk about that and extend it. So finally, friends, let's wrap up. Because this is the marriage model of Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves if we're ready to accept it. It is covenantal. It is heterosexual. It is monogamous. It is sexually exclusive. It is loving. And it is permanent. And it's a good design. I've now seen people who are years and years ahead of me walking out this design, and it's a good and beautiful design. And it will ennoble you and dignify your personhood and honor the image of God in you, and it will bless society if lived out broadly. It is a good and beautiful plan. And when all the parts are there, it's something that works over the long run. If, and I'll use Jesus' words here, if you can accept it. Can you accept it? What do you need to do, Christian, this morning to bring yourself online with that plan? What do you need to do? Do you need to get confessional about desires inside of you that just don't line up and just be honest and transparent about that? Do you need to repent 
of a marriage breakdown that you justified because of the hardships that it pushed on you, and yet you have failed to, to admit today before God and everybody, that was a break in God's design. And repent of it. I mean, what do you need to do when it comes to modeling for the children that are in your life? What do you need to do to get on that design? I submit that when we decide together to get on this plan, friends, we are going to be an oasis. We are going to be an island of sexual sanity in a sexually confused world. And posture then to that world will not be, hey, I want you to do what I want. No. Our posture will be, I want you to want what I do. Let's pray together. God, we ask for that island. We ask for that oasis of sanity to descend on this little community of Jesus followers. And may it be a testimony to the people both within our own community who are desperately seeking you and also all the people around us that this is functional. This is what works and this is what has the sanction and blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Father, may that turn us into a spectacle in a world of increasing brokenness and hardships. And may we then reflect you and our view of sexuality and our view of marriage. Glorify the God who invented it. I pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, AC.